You know, after singing a song like the one we just sang, as I invite you to find the book of Romans in chapter 6, the only thing I can say is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer to that? God forbid. Meganoite. No way. That's absurd. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore being buried with him, through baptism into death. We who have been raised from the dead should walk in newness of life. Amen to that? If you have a Bible, you can find Romans chapter 6 with those very words recorded in there. For if we've been, verse 5, united together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, rendered inoperative, brought to nothing, so to speak. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe we will also be raised with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death has no dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon, count yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin have mastery or reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And stop presenting your body parts as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present them once and for all to God as being alive from the dead, and your body parts as instruments of righteousness to God. And here's the reason why. Sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under the law anymore, but you're under grace. That's as far as we're going to get today. If you have, you've opened your Bible to Romans chapter 6. If you have one, otherwise we'll, we're not going to put the scripture up today, but I'll be alluding to it as we go. We are resuming our study in Romans in a new section of Romans. We're simply titling Wanted, Dead and Alive. If you've been with us up until now, we have been looking at this great gospel of God, this theme of Romans, and the doctrine of salvation particularly. Remember Paul right out of the chute says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everybody who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is declared. The just shall live by faith. And then Paul begins to lay out this verdict that's really against these. He takes us into a courtroom, remember that? And shows that we're all condemned before God because he has so displayed himself in creation 
in our conscience. His goodness has been shed all over the place so that we, we can't, we have, we're, we're absolutely without excuse. And we have seen in that opening part of this study the detestableness of our sin. We've all sinned. We've all become, come short of the glory of God, right? But then God opens up this amazing link to himself through his son and his death on our behalf in taking our sin upon himself that if we would just place our faith in him, we could have eternal life. And, and Paul in chapter 4 even defines what faith is. You want a strict biblical definition of faith? Here it is, Romans 4, verse 20. You know, being fully convinced that what God has promised, he is able to perform. That's what faith is. You're absolutely convinced in the soul of your being that whatever God has promised in his word to you, he is able to come through with that promise. And so Paul says in chapter 5, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Which is a very nice thing for him to do, amen? Give us peace when we are enemies of God. And as we studied those first five chapters, we answered a question that came to me via email back in October from a young woman from Madrid, Spain. She was in not one but two false systems of worship and was completely confused, though utterly and completely sincere in seeking after God. God was pulling her in, obviously, but she was very confused. She had lots of questions. In fact, she, here's what she said in her first email to me. I was looking for Christian videos on YouTube, and I found your church videos, your sermons, and some videos of baptism that you had, and they impacted me a lot. So we began this correspondence back and forth. And she was very open. I shared truth with her. Back and forth we went. And about a month later, I received an email, which was even more thorough. You could tell God was working in her life I was sort of frustrated because it was all through email, you know. But she said this. She asked this question. She said, what do you mean when you talk about, quote, placing your faith in Jesus, unquote? Good question. And it sounds like really low-hanging fruit, but she wasn't. She was really wrestling with what it meant to place your faith in Christ and what it meant to have God's righteousness and what it meant to have peace with God because when she came across Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, she saw that she was a, quote, enemy of God, and that really bothered her. I know Brent, I saw Brent Conkle walk in earlier. Brent Conkle, who was converted a couple of years ago, that was, you know, as the old timers, that was the bugaboo, so to speak, on his heart. Brent, for years, or rather, months rather, studying the truth, and only when he saw that he was separated from God and at enmity with God, did he see his great need for God, just like some of you need right now? That bothered this young woman as well. Well, as we get into chapter 6, we get into, we go from the doctrine of salvation to the doctrine of sanctification. Okay? We're going to be there for the next, really for the balance of Romans, but particularly the next couple of chapters. Now, sanctification is sort of a subset to salvation. In fact, there can be no sanctification where there's no salvation. There can be no salvation that doesn't produce sanctification. 
Sanctification is a word which, uh, it's, though the word isn't used in this passage of Scripture that we just read, the idea of it is. Sanctification, the word means to be set apart. It comes from our word holy. It means to, set, to separate something unto something else. At salvation, when, when an individual truly, from their heart, places their faith in Jesus, at that moment, salvation occurs and sanctification begins. And it, it begins a process by which we, little by little, over time, even years, are continuously being transformed into the image of Jesus. Until the day we, we are with Jesus, and John says, we're, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Have you ever read that? Until that day, this process of sanctification should be continuous in my life and in your life. Our part Your part and my part in the process of sanctification is to, as I I teach in our membership class, we talk about holiness because holiness and sanctification are inextricably tied together. They basically mean the same thing. And so what it means to be holy, I always tell people, because I like simple definitions, my own personal definition of holiness is adjusting yourself to God. Remember, John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we'll have what? Well, fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, will cleanse us from all sin. So think of that imagery of walking in the light, and when light comes on, we see things better, right? And so holiness, or sanctification, is, is you and I who follow Jesus already. We've placed our faith in him. We are constantly adjusting ourselves to that light, checking ourselves, and it's It means more than just getting victory over life-dominating sins, though it does mean that as well. But when you are adjusting yourself to the light of God and thus walking in sanctification, you're going deeper than just getting over life-dominating sins. You're dealing with deeper character issues in your life. This is where real, real sanctification starts taking place. We're talking about involving things like, like increased tenderness to God. And a willingness to recognize sins in your life like pride and anger and jealousy and bitterness, unforgiving spirits and the like. Now, all of us struggle in many ways. Can I get an amen out of that, huh? Thank you. Some of us really struggle. And there are many reasons, there are at least... And I'm not going to list them all, but there are a lot of reasons why some of you struggle as badly as you do. And I'm just going to list four of them. One is you're, just, you're not saved. That's the most basic reason. You're not a true Christian. You're going to struggle because you've never truly been converted. The young woman that began to correspond with me from Madrid, as I said, has embraced not one but two false systems of worship in her life. And so while she was very sincere, she had no assurance of her salvation. And some of you are just not saved, like her. You're just not saved. You've never truly placed your faith in Jesus. And there's a reason why you you, you can't even point to a time where you've had any victory in your life because you've never entered into victory through Christ. There's a second reason a lot of people struggle, and this is going to hit closer to home. 
is because you have unwittingly bought into a Galatian form of Christianity, which isn't Christianity at all. And by Galatian, I'm, I'm talking about the book of Galatians where the Apostle Paul is actually writing to a church. He's actually writing to a group of people who have placed their faith in Jesus, but having begun in the Spirit, they, they, start, they operate in the flesh, which is an absolute oxymoron to Christianity. Galatian Christians are legalistic Christians. This is probably the closest thing to the circles that we've been running in for many, many years. These are the kind of Christians who, who hear the true gospel that Christ died and rose again. I need to place my faith in him. And then some, somebody gives them a list of things to do and not do. And, and suddenly you do the right things and you don't do the wrong things. And you, you mark yourself as a spiritual person as a result. That makes no sense, biblically speaking. Legalistic Christianity basically says, I, I'm spiritual because I do certain things. I'm spiritual because I don't do certain things, and I must be right with God. That's foolishness. And we've been working for years to get back to the Bible, amen, on what it means to have a true, spiritual, sanctified life. Pride is another reason why some of you will not progress in sanctification. It's really the basic reason why everybody stumbles and struggles about. But, but I, and I've alluded to it a few years ago, but I remember a man in the first church that I pastored, he came into me one day and he was appealing to me about how I really needed to work with the newer Christians more because he said, you know, I did all my growing under, and he mentioned the pastor before me. I'd been his pastor for 10 years. He just told me he did all of his growing, past tense, 10 years earlier. And he didn't mean to, he wasn't trying to be arrogant, he wasn't trying to, but he was basically telling me that he hasn't grown. That somebody had shoved some false idea into his mind that if he just, you know, if you just kind of get, get through those first several, you know, books of whatever you're going through on discipleship and, you know, you've checked them all off, you're a spiritual person. As long as you go to church, you know, three times a week or whatever it is. And you might, think, you might be thinking, some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds kind of ridiculous, but I've actually heard some of you make comments like this. I've heard some of you make comments like, you know, I really grew during this time. And I've heard, I remember years ago there was a precept study, and some of you that have been around Sailorville for years have alluded to that study. I, sometimes I hear some of the comments about that, and I think, I mean, I realize that had to be a precious time, but what you don't realize is what you're not saying. What you're not saying, you know, that is, by not saying, uh, I'm not growing right now, <laughs> you're in a sense saying, I'm not growing right now, because I'm, I, I really cherish that era, that epic, that time you know, when I really got into the word. Sanctification should be an ongoing, continuous process in my life. In my life, it ought to be an ongoing, continuous process in yours, don't you think? The fourth reason people will struggle is just, is, is, and it's insinuated in this passage, and that is ignorance, lack of knowledge. Now, I know knowledge by itself will puff up but, and love builds up, but you need knowledge. We should never be content with just understanding the gospel. We should be going deeper in the things of God. And Paul is going to tell us 
at the very get-go in this passage, if you don't know, and he uses the word know, if you don't know, if you don't start going deeper in the things of God, you'll never appreciate the victorious life, much less live it. So, I mean, his summary statement of this passage, Paul's summary statement of this passage, can be found in Galatians chapter 2. Remember what he says there? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So, only when we get there, do we begin to, we get beyond just the surface of Christianity and understand our identification with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection? Will we begin to deal with the, and break the ugly, ungodly, and often generational patterns in our lives? Somebody asked me, somebody said to me uh, not long ago, I don't want to be like my dad. And my first thought in my mind was, if, if you're a Christian, you don't have to be like your dad. Right? I mean, we've all seen this scenario play itself out all the time. We focus on the person we don't want to become, and then we become exactly like him. We've seen it, right? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That's why we said we need to be where Paul said, we all with unveiled face, beholding it as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image, even by the Spirit of the Lord. You know, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Instead, we have individuals who focus on the people they don't want to become like, and then they end up becoming just like them, and they wonder why. It's because you have beheld them. Stop beholding the evil and start beholding the glory. On the other hand, I have met certain people I've spent time with who have blessed my life and have demonstrated spiritual power and character and godliness and humility and sensitivity to God. And then I meet their family that they grew up with and I think, how did they come out of that? But why would I even think that? I know the answer, so do you. It's the gospel. It breaks the chains of these sins. Sanctification, listen carefully, sanctification The powerful process by which God separates us from sin and continues to do so throughout our lives is directly connected to identification, sanctification, identification, and namely with Jesus Christ. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. Our identification with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And why God wants us both dead and alive. At the time I became a Christian, I was an absolute slave to cigarettes. Anybody relate to me? Still smoking? Just just checking. Um, I mean, I was. I was a slave. And some of you probably, you know, some of you are probably out there struggling with that. I mean, just just a habit. It's a terrible habit. I mean, I get, I get. If I had two cigarettes left in my second pack, I'd figure I'd had a pretty good day. And so I got saved, and I really wanted to quit smoking. And I can still remember, I'd only been saved for about a week, and maybe it was actually two weeks, because I, I, I went to my brother's house, 
and, um, and he was pastoring a church, and uh, I was just on fire for God, <laughs> more ways than one, but um, I walked out of the house, and I said, uh, hey, hey, I, I got to go out to my car, and he follows me out of the car. I, I said, what are you doing, man? He goes, I'm just coming with you. He knew what I was going to do. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go have a cigarette. He said, what are you going to do that for? I said, well, because I smoke. He says, well, why are you doing that? I said, it's a habit, man. I said, I know I probably should. I, I don't want to do it. He goes, well, why don't you just quit? I said, well, you're so naive. You don't even get it, do you? Actually, he wasn't as naive as I took him for. He actually understood what we're talking about here. He said, just quit. You have the power of God. Just quit. He kind of ticked me off. A couple of weeks later, I, was, I left the house. I told my wife, I, I was trying to quit, but I was doing it all in the flesh and and uh, I was, ugh, you know, trying to, and I hadn't had one all day. And, and I told my wife I had to get, I, we were short on gas. I needed to get gas in the car. And we did need gas. <laughs> but that's how the heart is, dece- you know, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and all that. And so I got a hot car and I'm driving up the road. I'm going to my unsaved father-in-law's house to bum a cigarette. And I mean, as I'm driving up the hill, I can, I, the hill I can just picture, it's almost like Satan would just come and get it, you know, he's pulling me up there. And I'm driving up there, and I'm having a fight. I'm having a battle. And I can still remember verbalizing the word no. I said no, and I turned the car. I turned, I, 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 as, as much as I can remember, it was like instant relief. I never touched another one. What I didn't realize is, this is exactly what Paul said to Titus when he said in Titus 2, the grace of God that brings salvation, it's appeared to all men. Teaching us to say no, literally say no to ungodliness and unrighteousness. Have you ever read that? And I literally said no, and God freed me up. And what, what I didn't realize what the, was the powerful principles embedded in this passage of Scripture were already at work in my life. That's the good news. If you know Christ, they're already at work in yours too. You just don't realize it. And here's the first principle. Knowledge of what occurred when one is saved. You want victory in the sanctification process. You're going to have to have knowledge. Remember Paul said, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is a rhetorical question. How ludicrous. He said, what? Absolutely not. Don't you know? That you died to sin. You need to know this. Look what he says. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He says you died to sin. That's a simple past tense. I love how Ray Pritchard put it. Listen to this. He says, this is not a, this is not a present tense. We are dying to sin. Or future tense. We will die to sin. Or an imperative, die to sin! Nor an exhortation, you should die to sin. This is a simple past tense, you died to sin. Say it with me, you died to sin. And if you're a Christian, you can say, I died to sin. Look at verse 3 and 4. Don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death. Just as Christ was raised up by the glory of God the Father, even so we also should walk in newness, freshness. That's what the word means. 
Do you see the identification going on here? Baptism, which is briefly alluded to in this passage of Scripture. And you can argue, a lot of people argue, is he talking about spiritual baptism? I think primarily yes. But there is a direct, he uses the word baptism here because baptism does picture something. It pictures our identification with Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. In fact, I love what Christopher Ash said. He said, baptism is shorthand for everything God does when he makes someone a Christian. That's a true statement. Whenever you see somebody baptized, it's, it's shorthand for what God does when he saves you. You are a, you suddenly become in Christ. You, everything that happened to Jesus happens to you when you place your faith in him. You die with him. You're buried with him. You're resurrected with him. That's something you ought to know. He says in verse 5, the word united, if we have been united with him in his death, we'll also be united with him in his resurrection. The word means to be joined. The word, in fact, the word was used of Siamese twins. The idea of being inseparably joined to Jesus. And here's the point. Everything that happened to Jesus happens to the one who has been saved. This is mind-blowing truth. You died. You were buried. And you were resurrected in Christ. With him. And so he says in verse 6, we know the old self, the old man, was crucified with him. Why? So that the body of sin might be destroyed. That's why. The body of sin refers to our literal body parts. Your body parts are like tools in a toolbox. All right? Left to themselves, they'll always be bent toward that which is evil. But empowered by God, the opposite occurs. So when Paul appeals to the Ephesians and he says, he says to them, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and malice and anger, all of these things be put away from among you. He's talking to Christians Because he fully knows that non-Christians are incapable, absolutely incapable of dedicating their body parts to God. Their body parts haven't been crucified. They haven't been unplugged. The idea here is that they they might be rendered inoperative or... uh, how does he put it here? I can't remember how the ESV put it. Oh, no longer, he says, that they might be brought to nothing. That's a pretty good translation. Rendered inoperative. The authority of the power of sin in, in my life and in yours, when you trust Jesus at that very point in time, you need to know this, is unplugged. It doesn't have the same authority anymore. Paul's point is that we need to know this, we need to believe this, and we need to identify with Jesus. If you're a true Christian, you died to sin. Did you get that? If you're a true Christian, you died, past tense, to sin. Now, I know that this passage of Scripture with all of our cell groups, and what, five, six hundred of you getting together here in the next few days, some of you are going to be talking about this. You're going to want to go deeper in this. 
I hope you don't end up being like this particular cell group that's depicted in this cartoon where the lady is looking at the guy saying, well, I haven't actually died to sin, but I did feel kind of faint once. This is obviously not understanding what it means to die to sin. I know what you're thinking, though. You're thinking, well, if I die to sin, why do I still struggle with it? It's because you don't know that there is no longer any authority that sin has in your life to enslave you as it has. You're a little bit like a slave post-emancipation proclamation. Abraham Lincoln makes the announcement, the whole South is freed. Everybody's freed. Every slave is free. But if you were born into slavery, and that's all you ever knew was slavery, and you're walking down the street three weeks after the Emancipation Proclamation, and you see your old master, what are you going to do? What did they do? Some of them cowered. Some masters would still tell them to do something, and they would just be inclined to just do it, to obey them. But if they had the knowledge of the Emancipation Proclamation, they could look at their master and say, I am no longer under your authority. Do you get it? And that's what you can declare to sin and Satan, the world, the flesh, and everything that's trying to bring you down right now. You have been unplugged in Christ and plugged into him. Not just his death, but his resurrection. And you need to know this. The very knowledge of this is part of that which will give you the victory that you so desperately, desperately need. Uh, for me, the, it was illustrated with, uh, do you remember, some of you still remember the, the corded phones? We had one like that, only the cord was a lot longer because it hung in our kitchen. And I literally would, I would I'd be on, I, I'd walk all the way to the end of the kitchen. I'd be, I didn't think about ready to snap. And then I'd walk to the other side. Just like this. And I, I mean, this was important to me because I could pace. I was a pacer and I could talk for sometimes two, three minutes. And um, so, so anyway, so I did this for years. I just, and everybody made jokes out of the fact that I was a pacer as I, on this, where you can only go as far as the cord would allow you. And then one day, the blessings of God came upon our home. <laughs> and we received our first cordless phone. Hung on the same wall, Jack. Picked it up the first day. The first day, had a conversation with somebody. And here I am walking, just like this. Exact same path. No further one way. No further the other. And I caught myself. I realized, I'm still given to what? The restraint that I used to have. I had freedom to walk around the house. I could walk outside of the house even. This is the idea of the knowledge that you and I need in Christ. We are free. Christ's death and resurrection and our identification with him has set us free. Rejoice, Christian. Rejoice. In the knowledge of that, it's not just his death, it's his resurrection, both mentioned repeatedly in this passage of Scripture. Let me move on. Here's the second principle. You need to reckon or count, which is what the word means, to take into account the things, these things that you've been hearing to be a reality. Slide all the way down to verse 
11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Once you have the knowledge, then you have to take it into account. This is an accounting term. It means to take a fact to its logical conclusion. That's the idea in this word. If I have a million dollars in the bank, I don't have to wonder whether I can afford that snowblower that I'm thinking about buying to blow out my driveway. I can afford that. I have a million dollars. I really don't. Just letting you know. But... That's the idea here. The resources are all there. I have the knowledge. I reckon it. And it helps to give me the victory I need. So, again, Ash writes, we're not corpses unresponsive to stimulus of, the stimulus of sin. But sin has no right to enslave us anymore. And we're going to come back to this word slave used repeatedly in this passage the next time we come together. But the idea is you have the knowledge, now reckon it. These are three powerful verbs in this passage. Know, reckon, and the last one, and the the old translation says yield. But I like the better translation, that is to present, which is the third principle here. Present, that is dedicate yourself to God, to the God who saved you, if indeed he has. Look again, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign or have mastery over your mortal body to make you obey its passions. But here's the word. Present your members as instruments of... I'm sorry, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present, there's the word again, yourselves to God as those who've been... Brought from death to life. And your members, the members here are are your body parts. To God as instruments of righteousness. Because you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. The word member again means body parts. It literally means limb or organ. So it's talking about your physical body parts. These are the things we actively use to either serve God or disobey Him, right? From our mind to the things we touch, see, feel. The word instrument here refers to a tool or even a weapon. The picture in this passage is of a soldier standing before his commanding officer, ready to offer his life in service to his king. And the two verbs to present here have differing tenses. The first one where he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That's, that's just present tense. If you have a New American Standard, it does a great job of translating. It says, do not go on presenting. That's the idea here. You've been doing it. Stop doing that. The second one, the second one is aorist tense, which means past tense. The idea is once and for all, having fully understood and reckoned all the ramifications of my identification with Jesus, who died for me and rose again. I I get that. I understand that. I'm absorbing that. I'm reckoning that. And, And now that that's true, I am going to present myself to God and all my body parts to him. 
not any longer as instruments of unrighteousness, but instruments of righteousness to him. That's the idea here. And, and I know you're, you're probably thinking, ah, but I, I mean, how does this flesh out in our life? Look, whenever I do a wedding, I'll stand down here most of the time, and they're up here, and I'll be, I'll be standing here with the vows, and the couples are looking at one another like they should be, and I'll say, uh, Steve, uh, do you, uh, you being the, uh, the leader in this marriage, you promise to love Sue, uh, to cherish her, uh, to live with her, in understanding, in a, in a godly way, to, to follow the commandments of God with her as long as you both shall live. And Steve's up here looking at his wife, kind of looking at me. What's the appropriate response? I what? I will. I will. Now, that's always what they say. But what if I said... What if this guy's up here really thinking about the ramifications of this thing? And I say, you know, will you, will you live with her and cherish her according to the commands of God as long as you both shall live? And, he, and he's up here looking, he's looking, he's going, well, right now I would, I guess, yeah. I'd have to say, well, okay, now, um, Steve, let's go through this again. This is a very important moment. You're dedicating yourself to your wife-to-be, and so... Uh, Will you live with her and cherish her according to the commandments of God as long as you both shall live? And Steve's, I mean, it's, it's, he's, he's thinking about the ramifications of this commitment. He says, um, yeah, for now anyway, I'd have to call the marriage off. I'd have to call off the wedding. No, we totally expect Steve to say, I will. We totally expect Sue to say, I will. And we understand all the ramifications of that. I will means I'm dedicating my life to you. I'm dedicating myself to you. And all of my body parts, they're yours. And she's saying, I'm dedicating myself to you. And all of my body parts, they're yours. But the ramifications are, there's, there's a lot of struggles going to take place between now and eternity, right? That's the idea in this word present. It's just present yourself to God. I will. There, I know there's a lot of ramifications here, God. I know I'm going to screw up, but I love you, and I'm dedicating myself to you. I love you because of your love for me, what Jesus has done for me, his death, his resurrection for me. I love you, God. I want to live for you. I will. That's the call of God upon our lives. And it's not until death do us part. It's, an until, it's until eternity do we meet. Amen? When we're like Jesus, we don't have to worry about the struggles after that because they're done. And this unleashes power in our lives. And God does the saving. God does the sanctifying. But he uses his servants as his hands and his feet, as his mouthpieces for his glory. And so, uh, this young lady from Madrid, Spain, who I had this ongoing correspondence with, sharing these things with my wife, the staff, and I, it got to kind of an impasse because I thought... Um, 
I just, I'm giving her truth. I'm sharing truth with her, but it's not like I'm looking at her. You know, it's not like I can make an appeal to her. I can't see her eyes. You can't see me. You know, I, I just wish somebody was there that could see her, that could, that could speak directly to her. I thought about the scripture in Romans 10, which we'll get to, Lord willing, later on, where he says, you know, where Paul says, you know, how, how are they going to preach to him unless somebody's sent? How beautiful are the feet who preach the gospel of glad things and, you know, bring glad tidings of good things. Feet bring the gospel, right? Even though this is internet. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know somebody who went to Spain to be a missionary. Somebody who used to be a member of this church. Does anybody remember Andy Mesmer? He worked with our college ministry. He married a beautiful gal, Lindsay, who worked with our children here. And, but it had been years because he went on and got an advanced degree. And when I, I knew he went on to Spain, so I found him. I emailed him, hey, Andy, this is what's going on. Here's this gal I've been sharing with her. And he says, I live about 20 minutes from her. No kidding. It's actually about a half hour. They got together. They started having Bible studies. They met together about a half a dozen times. She went to church with them just two weeks ago. She met with them in their home for hours at a time. And last week, Sunday afternoon, I got an email with the caption, Hey, Pat, this is what Spanish fruit looks like. And almost simultaneous to that note and picture from Andy came a beautiful email of gratitude from the woman on the left who I had correspondence with for almost three months and more, thanking God for revealing the truth to her through the correspondence, yes, but also through that gal, Lindsay, and her husband, Andy, who had completely said, I will, and dedicated all of their body parts to God. And because of that, there's fruit in Madrid, Spain. Know, reckon, and yield. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are thankful today that we could get into your word look at some of these ramifications of sanctification, being identified with Jesus. And I know that this, this passage of Scripture, is, it's a heavy. I pray it's been redeeming and powerful and helpful to some. And perhaps, Lord, absolutely liberating to others in this room. There are those in this room, Lord, and perhaps even listening online, who are not... Christians, the struggles of their life have been because they've never truly repented of their sin, placing their faith completely and only in Jesus. They've been duped into thinking that Christianity is some, some just a new law, just a new way of doing this and not doing that. And perhaps they've heard today, Lord, that they're not under the law. There's grace here, and your grace will save. 
And I pray for those here. If that's you, you're in this room right now, and you'd say, I'm not a Christian. I, I want to become a Christian. I want to believe in Jesus. Well, do so. What are you waiting for? He loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. Believe in him. Trust in him right now from your heart. And God will save you. You'll die with Jesus. You'll be buried with Jesus. You'll be resurrected with Jesus. And you'll have a new life. And I pray, dear God, that this would be true. The reality of this would be true in those here who do know and love you. Who have been reminded today that they did die to sin, even though they've had this train wreck of a struggle with it. And they would understand and learn what it means to live in grace, knowing what Christ has done, deeply knowing, counting it as such, and presenting ourselves to you, dear God. Once and for all, fully realizing the ramifications of being with Christ. And we pray, Lord, you would bless these words and our time of reflection around your table now in Jesus' name, amen.